Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 2020, as we enclosed ourselves to protect ourselves and others from the ravages of COVID-19, I noticed for the first time in a long time the resonant chorus of birdsong. Without the sound and smog of vehicles, the natural world around us began to sing more loudly. But as I discovered through a conversation between Krista Tippett and sound ecologist Gordon Hempton on the radio program On Being, the return of birdsong to the world around us and to our consciousness is much more than something beautiful to listen to. Humans have evolved to not only detect the faintest birdsong in the distance, but to move in its direction. Birdsong is the primary indicator of habitats prosperous to our survival. It's an evolutionary marvel that enlivens and inspires me. I like to think of evolution as an accumulation of wisdom. Over millennia, our ancestors gathered information, logged data, and adapted accordingly so that we might be here now, enabled and empowered to thrive. But the birds of our ancestors sang in a very different jungle. The concrete jungles we inhabit now are increasingly inhospitable to our survival. And as Malachi Sargent explores with me today, tapping into and utilizing the ancestral and evolutionary wisdom within us is urgent work. What else do we know? In order for us to survive and to do for others what our ancestors have done for us, Malachi says we must continue to dream outside the carceral geographies of the cities we can feel so trapped in. To help themselves and others do this, Malachi does dream-enabling work, creating and holding space for queer Black creative expression in the arts. From theater-making to artistic direction, poetry, and performance, Malachi enables artistic expressions that not only challenge the carceral limitations of our world, but which offer what Catherine McKittrick might call liberatory clues. Aligned with the work of our ancestors, Malachi is helping us gather, log, and adapt. I caught up with Malachi ahead of their pilgrimage to Jamaica, where they reconnected with their liveliness through a closer proximity to land and lineage. And our conversation today is one of diasporic tensions, cultural knowledge, queerness as cosmic and ancestral gift, and how Malachi knows they sparkle when they sleep. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Malachi Sargent. Are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really glad to see you. Likewise, likewise. You look really well. How's everything with you? I'm well. I'm calculating at the moment. I'm trying to figure out what is the next thing. Um, so yeah, also like the full freelance life 
hustle thing, but I've not been in hustle mode really for a few months now. So I need to like get back into, hey, you know, you need to make money to live, right? That part. I, I mean, I recently quit my job about a month ago so that I could focus on busy being black full time. And then I was like, oh, I have to eat. So I have to pick up more work. And so now I'm doing like two different freelance jobs and it's not quite going as I didn't quite get the clean break I wanted. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to do is recalibrate to make sure that like, how do I build around me? like a system. I'm not good at systems, but I need them. Mm -hmm. How do I build systems and structures around me that help me do my work in a timely fashion so that I can move over to mm -hmm. do my busy being black work. But, you know, I'm not doing too bad for only being a month into this new journey. So I'm trying to also remember to be kind to myself. Yeah. And that these kind of things take time to build. Yeah. I think grace is like, I think often black queer people are so race giving to everybody else except ourselves um and yeah we just need to afford ourselves the same patience that we actually try and curate in the world i'm speaking for myself i feel like i am often trying to give people grace and then when it comes to me like all of the pressure that doesn't exist on anywhere for anyone else on anything else i just put on my head like a dickhead, like, oh, no, no, it's actually okay for me to, to be struggling right now. It's actually okay for me to say yes to loads of stuff. No, it's not okay. Give yourself grace, give yourself time. Um, yeah, talking to yourself with kindness, biggest thing I've learned ever in my life. Really? Talk to yourself nice. Say, talk to me nice in the mirror. <laughs> I love that. And I'm so glad that you're saying this because you know, I have felt guilty for being tired, but it's taken me a long time to realize, and with the help of social media, really, and with people putting forward their own experiences and saying, this is what burnout actually looks like. I hadn't mm -hmm. even considered that what I was experiencing this year was burnout. It hadn't even mm -hmm. crossed my mind. And I kept seeing these posts about burnout, about what it actually looks like. And I was like, oh my God, this is me to a T. This is what I'm experiencing right now. And I felt like having that language and those symptoms isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Like having a, a list of things one might be experiencing as a result of this burnout actually helped me like confront it more meaningfully. And it meant, well, now that I have, now that I know what I'm feeling, I have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the signposting helps, right? It's just such a simple thing, but labeling something as what it is then brings about a whole sort of backlog of realization. Oh, if this is burnout, then this must surely be exploitation. And if this is exploitation, then this must, you know, and then it's like, oh, all of these realizations are happening now. Um, yeah, freelancing is a weird one. It's a weird game. Like, well and I think for those of us who feel called to do certain types of work in particular, um, I, know, I know there's many listeners who feel called to do the work that you and I are doing, right? This kind of space making these mm -hmm. at the intersection of art, culture, politics, and the future, and through different mediums. Um, and what I didn't realize really was I, I took for granted that 
for most of lockdown, for most of the COVID-19 pandemic in its first iteration, we should say, as it's still ongoing. But for most of that time, I felt okay. And so I kept picking up more work and I kept picking up other people's work because other people were getting overwhelmed. And then I got to this spring, uh, 2022, and I was like, oh my God, I actually don't have anything. I said to, <laughs> I said to people, I think I have LGBT fatigue. And they were like, like, what does that mean? And I was like, well, I, I just don't like, I don't want to hear any more LGBT stuff because, you know, I do comms across for LGBT charities and at UK Black Pride and I do Busy Being Black. And I was like, how many times can you say don't kill trans people? Like, I just, I just, I was, I had lost the creativity and the zest that I was normally able to bring to my professional life. And I didn't have it in my personal life either. Um, and I felt that I felt guilty for that. I thought I should have more resilience. I should be better at navigating this. But we've all been navigating a completely unprecedented time in our lifetimes. And I think what's been really grounding for me in this unprecedented time is like having hobbies or like figuring out what my hobbies are, refiguring that out. Um, just having something that is separate to all of the things that I do for work, which were hobbies once upon a time, but I've now had to monetize. So like, what do I actually enjoy outside of the career that I've thrown myself into for the last eight years, where I've like, learning and developing and being a a good and better artist throughout that process. But like, what do I do to take myself away from it, especially when it's creative and it feels like the work and your friends and everything just kind of merges into one big mesh of a thing of existence. You can't really differentiate when this is a work thing and when it's like a not work thing. When it's a, this is me campaigning and and being, you know, really like political in my art. And this is me actually just making something. And if people find the politics in it, then that's cool. so like for me, I started to teach myself how to, how to DJ recently. It's not something that I want to do as like a, <clears throat> you know, book me to do DJ at your show. No, it's just for me because it's creative and I've always been really musical and I'm dyspraxic. So it helps me with my hands and my fine motor skills and stuff like that. And it's just a really good hobby for me. And it's like something that I can go to when I'm feeling a little bit like the LGBT fatigue is a bit much. You know what's funny about that is I just went to go see In the Black Fantastic at the Hayward Gallery, which I want to talk to you about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had this feeling over the past year that I want to paint. Nice. And I don't know where it comes from. I'm, I don't think I've painted since I was a child, but I thought I, I have to paint. And so I went to, to see In the Black Fantastic and I was looking at the work of... Um, Wangechi Mutu. And I mean, she does painting and collage and sculpture making, as you know. And I thought, I felt that feeling again. I was like, I want to paint. And not because I want to, as, you, as you're suggesting, I want to monetize it, but because I just need to express myself in a way that I haven't before. And that's the one that my spirit is saying, go find yourself a canvas and throw some paint on it. <laughs> oh my God, definitely. Body paint is fun as well. That's a, that's a good one. Body paint. Mm. that's really fun with like um a partner or someone you're dating or whatever you just get like um you know like a big roller banner sheet of paper and you can like cut 
it into long, basically like make a square and like put it on your, your living room floor or whatever. I've I got floorboards, so just stick it on the floor. And then you just get some body paint and you like roll around in it and you cover yourselves in it and you see what you can create on the paper. It's cute, man. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I'm currently quite ensorcelled with someone, and that sounds like something that I'd love to do with him. <laughs> Don't you love that word, ensorcelled? So good. Ensorcelled. It means like utterly enchanted. <laughs> That's such a good word. It reminds me of, you know, like a pestle and mortar. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about that word pestle. Like it sounds like a verb for like an anxious white woman. Like she's just like pestling around. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I mean, I think we started our conversation, so we might as well go. Um, so I'm asking this question mm. a little bit later than I normally would in a conversation, but how's your heart? How's my heart? My heart is beating fast, fast. Um, I'm preparing to go to Jamaica for a few weeks. Um, so there's a little bit of anxiety around like diasporic homecoming feelings. Um, even though I'm like estranged from the Jamaican side of my family, um, there's still that sort of like, my heart is swelling in preparation for like things to come in and to leave it. So I think it it's being fast, but it, it, it's, it's, it's well, it's, been settled for a long time so it is needing challenge so I'm accepting it and what's calling you back to Jamaica or back have you been before I went when I was a baby but um it, it kind of just presented itself like I'm blessed to have a friend who is financing some of the trip which is really nice um but yeah, like they they were actually away working in Jamaica over the summer and were like, you need to come here specifically and I'll do whatever it takes to get you here. So literally maybe what, two weeks ago, we were like, all right, cool. Yeah, let's go. End of September, end of September. So I leave in two days time and I'm going to see what it's saying. I'm gassed. I'm excited. And this tension around kind of diasporic homecomings, where do you think that emerges from? Or what informs it? Well, for me, like, I've never known my father. And, like, that side of the family is, I don't, I've, I don't know. I've met, like, a few of my siblings from my dad's side, but um, not all of them. And, yeah, the siblings I have met, they also don't seem particularly attached to their Jamaican culture either because they were largely raised by their moms who's either like Bayesian or Trini or whatever or whatever. Um, and myself, like my mom's side of the family is from Montserrat, which is a really small island in the Caribbean. Um, and Montserrat's weird because it's it's got an active volcano on the island. So the population of, of Montserrat is probably like I don't know, the population of Cold Harbor Lane in Brixton. It's just like, there's like 5,000 people on the island and most oh. of us are in the US or the UK. And we never got independence from Britain. So the whole question of uh, like cultural attachments and like 
lineage and uh, I guess sort of feeling like I have agency over these sort of, uh, yeah, these cultural backgrounds. It just feels diluted and it's it's held in people. Like my great grandparents who migrated here, they are the ones that have the knowledge for me and like the the lived experience of what it was being like as a child in Montserrat, for example, or getting married in St. Kitts or whatever. Um, but when they go, they take all of that with them. And similarly with my Jamaican side, I've never had that to begin with, to know what that culture looks like in a familial saying that I'm directly in, in receipt of or experiencing. So I feel like in a lot of ways, my whole sort of Caribbean-ness is really transient and I've had to do a lot of work to find it myself. Um, and then this is just a continuation of that. I was in Guyana and St. Lucia earlier this year. And that was like what locked that all in place for me. It was like, no, I actually need to be here. I actually need to, the pace, the people, the place, it's, it's calling. A few things come up when you talk about that tension of that homegoing, as Yajasi would say. Um, one is my experience in St. Lucia in 2020, because, you know, my, the Black side of my family is like 17 generations Black American. Like we've been on American soil since at least the mid 1700s. And so I feel culturally um, attached to Black American culture in particular, right? I spent my childhood summers there. I went to high school in Atlanta. Like those are my people, I understand. And when I went to St. Lucia, I felt so out of place. This is why I don't understand how white people can just go places and just take things and put things on because I, as a, as a Black person, culturally Black and whatever that means, but also like <laughs> phenotypically Black, like went into St. Lucia, I went to a fish fry and I was like, I don't belong here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this isn't mine. And that was despite the fact that there were people around me from St. Lucia saying, you're okay, you belong here. You're invited to be in this space. But it, it brought up feelings of home going for me. I thought, I thought I wanna eat fried green tomatoes and chicken fried steak and biscuits and gravy. And I wanna be on Peachtree in Atlanta and Piedmont Park. And I just wanna be around my people. So it, it stirred that up in me as well. But it also makes me think of the kind of enduring um, tensions or fault lines across the diaspora, right? That we we at once feel like we have title to other people's cultures while also being dislocated from our own sometimes. And I don't know quite what I'm trying to get at, but I, I love this idea basically. This is a long way of saying of you going home to capture that 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 knowledge. Yeah. And I or to situate yourself within a space where you maybe should have always been. Yeah, and I think it's definitely the latter, actually. Um, I've been thinking recently, like, what if my great-grandparents decided to just stay in Montserrat? Would there even be a lineage where my nan had, like, seven kids and, what, 15, 16 grandchildren, however many great-grandchildren? Like, would that even be possible? Or would they have been done out by a fucking volcano? Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Would that have been possible? Like her brother, who's uh, two, three years older than her, so he's 90, 
and he lives in uh in Brooklyn. Um and he still drives. He's just like active around about and yeah, like what if we moved to New York? Like how different would my life be? Would I even still be alive or would I have got lippy to a police officer? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's so many different avenues of alternate spaces that I probably am also existing on right now in other ways. But here in this one, it's like the the cultural detachment and familiarity sits as like a a pendulum just constantly oscillating between those two states of like this is really, really familiar. And this feels something that could feel like belonging. And then like this is like really unfamiliar and new and exciting and scary and that's also something to to process and navigate and like caribbeanness isn't monolithic like going even from guyana to saint lucia over the summer was such a trip because the way that the green is green is different in guyana to how it is in saint lucia and the way that uh the intonations in the accents and and the sort of dancing and in the rhythms of how people speak and the melodies of that is completely different one is a volcanic island and one is you know rainforesty and the amazon starts in the middle of of guyana so like even that in and of itself one is attached to the south american continent one is an island like all of these different very significant geographical uh, differences indicate how people relate to a place, right? Um, which is why a lot of Black people in the UK are sad. <laughs> because Yeah, because we, we're in these co concrete jungles. Right, exactly. And we're in these high-rises, and we're in these estates that are built so carcerally, where we're not afforded any privacy, where we wake up and our front door is eight other people's front door on the same balcony, five floors up in the sky. And we look out and there's no trees. It's just a car park in the middle of this estate. And that's what you're going to look at. And that's what you're going to have to deal with. And that's your reality. So how do you dream outside of that? How do you dream to know that your Caribbeanness isn't also concentrated in this estate through the fact that there's a jerk pan there on a Sunday and people are having a good time for once? Like, how does your Caribbeanness penetrate outside of that? How do we relate to that when we are fixed in these places that limit our imaginations of ourselves? I went on a rant there, but it was it was nice. It was good. good. Really good. You made me think of carceral geographies. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm reading um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's Abolition Geographies right now, and I mean, you've basically summarized her entire argument very <laughs> in one minute. And, and then the other thing I'm thinking of is the poem by, my favorite poem by Inwa Ellams. I'm just going to grab it. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, so Inwa Ellams has his tremendous poetry chapbook in what the actual or the actual. Um, and there's a beautiful poem about a young boy. I'm just going to read a part of it to you because you basically just read it back to me. What I'm trying to say is Kalechi hates sunflowers because Tyrone grew obsessed after his class straight day trip to the countryside. That first time he left the hulking concrete of his ends, that afternoon where the sky, enormous as it always is, looked down on him. Tyrone, for the first time, looked back, 
as if into the face of God, properly studying its swoops and tonalities, the contours of the countries of clouds, and the force that rose in him to match its unblinking vastness, brought him down to his knees, where he squelched his fingers into the good and clean earth, drilling his black thumb into blacker soil. The teacher scolded him all the way home for his mud-streaked seat and soiled trousers. What she didn't know is Tyrone had planted saplings of his spirit among the fields of barley. <laughs> Shit, every time this poem gets me. Yeah. <clears throat> among the fields of barley and seeds of himself among the sunflowers. And these kept calling for him when they returned to the city of bricks, clawing for their kin. Though he filled his room with them, he couldn't match life out in the fields. The sky's unencumbered gaze over their choir of black faces. Their petals like flattened crowns or ruffled halos. So Tyrone walked out his fourth floor window to join them and Tyrone never came home. Fucking huh? yeah. Every time I read that book, it gets me. It's just, it's not even that Tyrone was searching in the way that you are, right? That in the way that you have the language and the, I don't know, the way that you have the ability to know that there's something that you're looking for and you might know where to go to find it. I think what gets me every time was that he stumbled into the divine, right? He, he stumbled into this amazement and it, he was so taken by the divine and he knew that he didn't belong in these carceral cities, right? In these tower blocks, in these places where at every turn, black boys are killed, limited, murdered, chastised, scolded, policed, surveilled, right? And to see him as I mean, it's beautiful too, right? That he saw himself among these sunflowers and knew that's where he belonged. Um, and you made me think of that too, that that this, this need to get away from the limiting um, lives that other people imagined for us. There's, um, there's a lecture I watched by um, a guy, Professor Paul Goodwin, and he's talking about urban geographies and black music and the sort of ways in which our, our relation to music and culture is, is that transcendental ability to be able to tap in, what I took from it at least, is that it's that transcendental ability to tap into divinity and tap into source and tap into ancestry and, and where we've come from um through the alchemy of music but then what that does in the space of urban geography is produces very sort of the 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 architecture of places like london produces music that sounds like the architecture of the city that's why like the last 30 years of dance electronic dance music from like uh the origins of like drum and bass and jungle into garage into grime into drill it's all has that like gritty metallic like we're waiting for the bass to drop because that's what we feel that like very like guttural and it makes us 
and it makes us sweat and it makes us get our gun fingers out and like that that alchemy still exists even though it's been produced by and in these cities that are oppressing us and I think there's something really beautiful in that and I think there's something to hold on to in that because where is the hope otherwise because I'm I'm looking but it's got to be in these things right it's got to be in the the majestic and transcendental way that black queer people exist in particular, um, we have to find that for ourselves because as you said, like we're dying. We're dying and, and we're being murdered by the state. And no, there's, there's not even like, they're not even trying to, to pretend anymore. They're not even trying to hide. The absurdity of it all, right? <laughs> we have to find joy. My conversation with Malachi Sargent continues in just a moment. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Josh Rivers, and welcome back to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with artist, producer, and educator Malachi Sargent. They co-founded and was artistic director of theater company The SNK Project. And at 21 years old, they were appointed associate director at Theatre Peckham, where they were responsible for cultural programming, nurturing young artists, and developing new writing. There's a sound ecologist called Gordon Hempton, and he says that rainforests have the same acoustics as a cathedral, right? And so the sound of animals is transformed in relation to your proximity to these animals within this kind of beautiful and majestic, to use your word, um, cathedral-like um, space. I'm thinking of now Hanif Adiraki, who in his poem about the death of Michael Jackson is talking about everyone being in these like, being very sweaty and slick with sweat in this kind of very moist and confined space. And, you know, these are spaces that we city dwellers are used to inhabiting. So this music is also the acoustic, like reverberates based on the acoustics of the spaces that we're in as well, right? That within these sometimes confining our cultural spaces that this transcendental alchemical music perhaps that makes us feel more comfortable in those spaces yeah i and also just what is the sound of the location like where in saint lucia I, did i hear any sirens like did, did i hear any sirens i was there for what, five weeks did i hear a siren no my soundscape was the frogs and the crickets from 6.30 p.m. onwards as it's dusk getting into sunset. 
then there would be different people playing music at different points. Tuesday night was karaoke. The familiarity of it and the pace of that, that, that soundscape of that location is what the different points in me need to be able to like be open and liberated. Um, how can we liberate ourselves, you know, in, in council homes that were meant to be pulled down 30 years after they were built? How can we liberate ourselves in, in those selves? You know, um, Murakami writes in Kafka on the Shore, one of my books I've read, a book I've read recently, which has quickly become one of my favorites, that there, there can be no responsibility without imagination. Mm. And I, I, and I think there's a number of levels to that, right? We as, let's say, you know, to base ourselves in the United Kingdom or more specifically in England, have been systematically, you know, dulled, right? And that's not just Black people who are the more vibrant among us, right? <laughs> Rather, but that we as a culture are, are, can be quite dull. And, you know, as a recent article in um, Days makes clear, you know, the English in particular are so um, sadomasochistic, right? Love suffering. I think there's something ennobling about eating banana sandwiches or struggling through the COVID-19 pandemic or allowing people to die, right? There's something ennobling about suffering and death. And so that can only be the product of a stilted and stunted imagination, right? Which is, is systematic, it's, it's done on purpose. I forgot where I was going. <laughs> but just on that point, the whole like notion, the whole keep calm and carry on post-war notion, are we in a war? Have we been in a war for the last 85 years? Like, why is everyone calm? The state, like, facilitates a docile uh, population. It doesn't uh, want critical thought or challenge or critique, which is why throughout the 2010s, the Tories spent the entire time decimating the education system to make it more difficult to get good grades for people to get into universities who are not people that they want to be critiquing the system. Okay. And then when I was doing my GCSEs, they introduced, was it Michael Gove? When he was education secretary, introduced his thing around the IBAC, international baccalaureate, whatever, where you have to do a language, uh, a history or geography, an art course, or and like a science or something. But it meant that I only had eight GCSEs when other people I knew in other schools were getting like 12, 13. So like this a narrowing of the curriculum alongside the architecture and the narrowing of like the physical space that we have to occupy that more time we don't own. Um, compounding with all of the other systematic racism that exists within like healthcare and employment and etc etc access to green space and da, 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 da. like it's designed for us to be docile it's designed for us to just like oh well I guess this is how things are and that's how the British continue to rule it's, this is how they continue to rule us in charities like the first charity was the East India Company bro like 
just because that that's what it was. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean we shouldn't question it. And it's like, yeah, they don't want us to question. They want us to keep fucking calm and carry on. That was what the point was. Responsibility. Right? There can be no responsibility without imagination. And that's what I was trying to get at, right? Is that we have become so stunted. And I say we to mean, again, just to reiterate, I don't mean Black people in particular, but we is that the royal we have become so stunted in what we think is possible. And this passivity or this docility that you're referencing is so damaging. It's a death dealing docility, actually, right? It will be the, it will be to everyone's detriment. And so I'm, I'm currently exploring with many different people simultaneously what it means to cultivate an imagination where we kind of take responsibility, not only for the wild and voluptuous interior lives we have, um, to quote to quote Kevin Kwashi, um, but our responsibility as as citizens, right, as as fellow humans, because I, I don't want just freedom and liberation or freeness for myself. Like that seems too limited. It doesn't seem imaginative enough. But you're making me think actually about what it means for us to to leave and go and find out what freeness could feel like, so that we might reinvigorate. Um, and revitalize our imaginations. Which is kind of like a microcosm of Afrofuturism, right? That just popped into my head, <laughs> right? That, you know, one of the critiques lobbed at Afrofuturism, and indeed this came up in, in the Black Fantastic, actually. Uh, for me, it came up, was that one of the artists, um, kind of the scene was set as if people of color had fled Earth and gone to some other planet to start again. And the people who were left behind suffered from revitiligo, I think they call it, a darkening of the skin. So on the first instance, I hate that the, the darkening of the skin is seen as a punishment of some kind, like that seems counterproductive to me. But also this idea that, that, that we leave and we don't also take with us all the things that we have been indoctrinated and enculturated with. And so what you're demonstrating, I think, what I'm receiving from this is that right here where we are, we have opportunities to look, explore, search, and see, you know, what here lights us up? What already exists that lights us up that could possibly be a better way to live? And how might we bring that to bear for more of us? There's something um, I was reading uh, as I'm researching for my dissertation and there's a book called Afrofabulations, the queer drama of Black life. And um, it's a chunky book, but I've been making my way through it. But the very um, question that sort of guides uh, Tavia Nyong'o's research is, how might we begin to make sense of the paradoxical vibrance of a form of life endangered or even erased by efforts at documentation and representation. And I think that's a really useful and grounding question when approaching these kinds of conversations, because we, we are trying to be fabulous and we are trying to exist through um, impossibility and impossible circumstances. We're trying to just still be here um, and be here fully. Um, but how can we do that in this great paradox of everything trying to kill us? Um, and I think, you know, uh, our, our lives are majestic and our lives are, I sparkle when I'm asleep in my dreams. I know that around me is a sparkle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, 
I am fabulous and I am Afro-queer and I am living. And of course, not everyone has the language or the understanding or the experience or the capacity or the resource to be able to have these kind of conversations, to be able to draw on experiences of traveling, to be able to reference poets and academics and researchers. That doesn't mean that they don't sparkle when they sleep as well. Um, and I think, yeah, this question is something that I've been coming back to recently in my research. And yeah, as an offer to you and whoever's listening, I think it's it's useful to consider like, beyond the documentation, like that's rather fickle on like Instagram and like that form of archiving, like what else are we doing to, to remind ourselves that we are fabulous and that we exist in and amongst everything else? I sparkle when I sleep. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful way to think about it and to imagine ourselves right i think that's maybe you pointed to something that i've maybe missed in this conversation about the imagination is i've been looking ahead as if we aren't there yet does that make sense and what you're calling me back to is hey you're actually already sparkling mm. yeah actually already sparkling which is not you know again to reverend angel kyoto in her quote about love that love is spaciousness that we're inviting people to show up as they are it doesn't mean that we don't hope that things are changed or shifted mm. so we can sparkle even as we move towards a world that's more just for all of us mm. Mm -hmm. i do it's it's difficult right and I, I reference sleep because I feel like that's when I do a lot of my processing. Like, I got very like uh, love hate relationship with sleeping. Um, at the moment, I'm in like a go to sleep at six a.m., wake up at nine a.m. sort of situation, which is not fantastic. But like, I do so much of my processing uh, in my sleep, and like, the longer I sleep, the more tired I am when I wake up like physically tired it shows on my body and so I know that I've been doing extra work in um in the sort of ancestral realm when I'm asleep right okay and that's why I sparkle in it because like my, my actual physical body is actually resting yeah. and everything else is still working um I don't know, for me, my queerness is, is inherently tied to um, my relationship to my ancestors or my ancestors of African lineage who show up for me and who were working in, in my favor. You can't just call on any ancestors, bro, and think they're going to do you nice. Like, you've got to be specific. <laughs> like, my grandfather is a white man. Like, I can't just be calling on any ancestors. <laughs> You know, I did an inst I did a white ancestor praise dance on Instagram a few weeks ago to, <laughs> to Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> How did you get your body out of time? Is that possible? I was like, listen, I got to call on them too sometimes. <laughs> y'all need to help me make sense of this. <laughs> I don't think y'all are getting off scot-free. <laughs> y'all got to work in the afterlife. <laughs> Um, well, I had a plan for this conversation and Great. we're almost out of time and the, we haven't even touched on any of the questions I had, but I love when that happens because um, the ancestors obviously have guided us to a place 
that we both needed to go. And I know that I certainly needed to go too. And thank you for, um, you know, sparking in me a reminder of that poem by Emma Ellums um, about sunflowers because it's made me sparkle in a way, right? Even in its, in its grief. Um, as our conversation draws to a close, um, what listeners won't know necessarily is that you and I first met in 2014, I think it was, when we were both working at Second Home, a cultural venue and workspace in East London. And I remember, I'm gonna tell a little story, it's brief. We were working an event, you were on reception and I was hosting and I don't remember what event it was, but there were loads and loads and loads of white people as these kind of spaces naturally attract. And um, I was being quite nice and gracious and hosty, of course. And once they had gotten into the event, you and I were sitting on the couch um, in the cafe in the front of the building. And you said, how are you so nice to all these white folks? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I said something along the lines of, you have to just suck it up. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you've done a great deal of work over the past eight years and, and you were doing work even before we met. Um, have you learned in the past eight years in particular through moving through arts and culture and indeed the world more broadly, how to answer that question? How are you so nice to all these white people? That's a really, yeah, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, the last three years, my patience has waned. It's uh, interestingly, so the sort of parallel there is that the last three and a half years I've been delivering anti-racism consultancy, looking at like policies and processes and structures within cultural organizations and charities, as well as delivering uh, anti-racism training through like a lens of um, starting at colonialism onwards and not the whole unconscious bias. It's not your fault really, slap on the wrist bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so in those spaces, going into somewhere like RBS or Meta, or even like, some larger cultural organizations in in the UK it's really just a bit like and like having to travel with that as well like showing up and being in like Wolverhampton or Bristol or whatever my patience for white people is like plummeted like absolutely fell like shares in Snapchat it is declining and I just don't know how to um extend grace to white people anymore because of the events that have happened over the last few years it's like you've actually got to be willfully ignorant to to uh not be able to engage with me in a way where there isn't just like bare minimum that I'm receiving in terms of like you're using my correct pronouns like I'm not going to congratulate you for, th for that or for you know framing intersectionality in a way that is not actually how it's supposed to be used, but you think it is. Like, there was a whole moment when white people were using intersectionality as like a replacement for diversity. It's like, you know, and they're just like a really sort of like intersectional person, um, you know, that's sort of like non-binary and really just got loads of energy and very intersectional. What does that mean? How can a person, what, what? So, I don't have time for the weaponization of the language that they're exposed to. Um, I 
I have one white friend who I met in 2010 in secondary school who grew up in Tottenham. So again, like the the class dynamics are different there. Um, and my other white friend is is Irish and hates the English. <laughs> so it's like another thing there. I just don't know anymore. But back in like 2018, maybe I could answer that and say, mm-hmm. well, it's a performance, huh? It's a big performance. Um, but I feel like I'm doing the same performance in black cis het spaces, the same performance of uh, dimming down my sparkle, I suppose, because it can intimidate people, especially because of my age and the stuff that I've done. Like, white people hate that shit. People will put you in positions to make you look like you don't know what you're doing, which is why you have to work twice as hard three times as hard, 19 times as hard, because people will set you up and expect you and want you and watch you try to, like, try to watch you fail. So you always have to have, like, your blinkers on around white people. Even in the performance, you have to have your periphery over there to see if one of them is running at you with a machete. Like, there, there is no safety amongst whiteness. Um, but and I want to be specific in that by saying whiteness because whiteness is transcendent of how we've been racialized. Whiteness is is an ideology, is a system of oppression. And if you're a cis, straight, middle class, if you're a cis, straight, working class black person who's like proper Christian, like some of your views are just as oppressive and just as hostile as cisgendered, white, straight, middle class people, you know? Um, So I think to actually answer your question, there is no such uh, way that I currently am nice to white people. Um, and in fact, when I'm being paid, I'm even less nice to white people because I'm really giving it to them. <laughs> yeah. And I think I've changed tremendously since that moment, right? That that event. And indeed that, I mean, I think without saying too much, many of us who uh, were involved at Second Home came out quite different people afterwards for various reasons. Um, and... I think what I've learned in the time since is that there's there's almost no point, you know, because you'll we can never do enough, never be nice enough, never be gracious enough, never be accommodating enough, patient enough. Um, it, and I think the events of 2020, 2021, 2022, and even more recently, the Queen's death and the absolute erasure of history, of our feelings, of our lived experiences as as colonized and racialized people has just been another indication that for me, it affirms my desire to go deeper into queer Black communities because there's so much reparative and healing work to be done among us. And I just don't know it makes sense for someone of my interest, of someone of my interests and passion and desires to spend that time fighting whiteness, as it were, when it could be emboldening and empowering queer black people. What like that's my entire vibe. Like I don't willingly create any of my work with white people because they make me feel unsafe. Why I'm lucky enough. I'm not lucky. I've worked fucking hard. I'm in a position where I can now fundraise and make decisions and bring in the teams that I want to make work with. Why would I voluntarily choose to work with a white person who doesn't understand any of my cultural 
context, any of the idiosyncrasies of being black, and more importantly, being black and queer. Um, but even that, like when you're talking about the restorative work that that does happen, and I can attest, contest, attest, that does happen in queer spaces. We're tapped. Like a lot of us are not okay. And a lot of us need to heal ourselves before we even enter those spaces because there can be a lot of violence in that too. I lived in a house there for what? Less than three months when I was with my ex because we were trying to create a black queer utopia. And some of the people that lived in that space were not okay. Like absolutely not healthy, have really bizarre relationships with people, won't ever date anyone that's darker than them, like a lot of internalized things. But I'm sharing a space with you. I'm living in your in this house with you. So like I I there's only so much. I think what I'm saying is we need to be aware of what our capacities are. There's only so much that I can do in my own home to help restore somebody else. But like in those intentional or like sometimes unintentional where you're just out and you see a bunch of friends that you love. Um, spaces of, of healing and congregation and nurturing and um, decompression, inject it, like give it to me every day. Okay. Thank you so much for this beautiful and soaring conversation. And I'm really so proud of you. And I hope it isn't patronizing, but, you know, to, we started out in much, each of us was in a much different place when we met in 2014. And to watch your star shine, or to watch you continue to sparkle, and your star rise and your work just transform. Um, have been really beautiful to witness and to bear witness to. So thank you for bringing your sparkle into, into my space. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. A Barbican Young Poets alumnus, Malachi Sargent is co-creative director of literary arts organization Born Free and remains passionate about expanding the canon of Black British writing across its forms. They are currently undertaking an MA in Black British literature at Goldsmiths. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness, and my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.